This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Anne Greenhall, your host tonight. My dear colleagues and co-hosts Jeff Klein and Mike Usim are off for the evening. And we have a really wonderful show lined up, and I'm hoping since I'm flying solo that our listeners may call in. So let me remind you right at the top of our call-in number, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So jot down that number, and when you hear about our guest, I know that you will want to join me tonight. I have a real pleasure and real honor of interviewing Dr. William Hazeltine, and he has just written a new book called World Class: A Story of Adversity, Transformation, and Success at NYU Langone. Health. So let me welcome Dr. Hazeltine to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And let me just double check. I'm, my name is very difficult to spell. It's G-R-E-E-N-H-A-L-G-H. And that G-H on the end always throws people. So just let me double check. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Hazeltine or Tyne? It's neither. It's Hazeltine. 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 And uh, I say it that way because that's the way my dad said it. And I say Greenhall because that's the way my dad said it. (laughs) Okay, Hazeltine. All right, thank you. And again, um, I'm here in Philadelphia and not New York City, but I want to make sure that I have Langone pronounced correctly. Is that right, too? You've got it right. Okay. (laughs) And last order of business before we, um, we begin, do you have a preferred way for me to address you? Uh, Dr. Hazeltine will do. Hazeltine will do. All right, very good. Well, doctor, welcome Dr. to the Dr. show. Dr. Hazeltine. Dr. Hazeltine. Okay, right. thank you. Well, welcome. I'm really, really delighted and honored to have you here. And let me just tell our listeners a little bit about you. You've had a prolific career in science, in business, and in philanthropy. You were a professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health. And you are well known for your pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS, and genomics. You have founded more than a dozen biotech companies, and you have also served on the advisory board for numerous international entities, from the Brookings Institution to the Council on Foreign Relations. In fact, your relentless focus on delivering world-changing results led Time magazine to name you one of the 25 most influential global business executives. You're currently chair and president at Access Health International, a nonprofit organization that works closely with public and private partners to improve access to high-quality and affordable health care. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here, Doctor. So let me, if I may, let me begin at the beginning. Can you say uh, a little bit about your upbringing and what may have uh, sown the seeds for your, for your current work and career? I grew up in a small town in uh, the California desert. My father was a uh, weapons scientist working for the Navy. The closest that anybody uh, would know to where I grew up is a place called China Lake. Okay. Many years later, I went back with some friends and we were flying over it or near it. You can't fly over it. And uh, I said, I used to bicycle from here to here when I was getting ready to go to Europe. And they uh, looked at me and said, you mean from nowhere to nowhere? <laughs> so uh, that's where I grew up on the uh, west face, uh, east, the uh, east face of the Sierra Nevada. It was a beautiful place for a kid. Okay. But what motivated me was actually much closer to home. Uh, both my parents had various kinds of illnesses, both physical and uh, mental, particularly my mom. Uh, she suffered from psoriasis that led to blood poisoning, detached mm-hmm. retinas, and a number of other issues. We were very close, and I just didn't think it was right that people should suffer from disease. And from mm-hmm. very young age, I decided I would do whatever I could to alleviate human suffering. Oh, 
that's very, very poignant. And I know just from reading a little bit about your biography that your siblings are also very distinguished. I, that's true. And people ask me sometimes, uh, how can, uh, how come you have such distinguished uh, siblings and what happened in that family that all of you seem to have done uh, exceptionally well? My answer is, my parents wound us up so tight we're still unwinding. <laughs> That's a great answer. Uh, I had the pleasure once of uh, inter- interviewing uh, the first four-star general woman, uh, Anne mm-hmm. Dunwoody, and she has written a wonderful book called uh, The Hires, uh, Highest Standard. And in the opening chapter, she has a wonderful expression in which she says that leadership begins at home. And she really literally meant at home uh, with upbringing. And so I very much appreciate your comment. You're still trying to unwind. So, uh, and because we're, we're here at a university, I can't help myself. And I hope my, our listeners, my listeners will indulge me. I always like to hear a little bit about your undergraduate education. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Um, I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, uh, and I have to say it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I was, uh, I entered and as a um, pre-med student, but in my first year chemistry class, I was fished out of a sea of 3,000 by a wonderful mentor, George Pimentel. Wow. Uh, he later went on to be the, fifth, uh, the, the third or fourth man out of a Nobel Prize. He didn't get it, but he should have. I uh, <laughs> was a wonderful scientist and educator. He uh, had a program, literally, to capture people's interest in science. He created a program the first uh, summer I was uh, between my freshman and sophomore year, where there were 15 of us. He gave enough money to live in Berkeley for the summer. We studied the work of UC Nobel Prize winners mm. uh, during the week, and then we had a whole day with them. And it shows you what science can be at the top. And after that, I was hooked on science. Mm. And your major and my... I have to say also, Berkeley at that time was a hotbed of the free speech movement in 1964. And it also opened my eyes to a lot of political realities, and that has never left me either. So I had two really formative experiences. Uh, First of all, a love for science. And secondly, a deep interest in the human condition and politics. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And just, uh, you majored in chemistry, and why chemistry? Uh, well, it was I started in chemistry because that was one of the routes to pre-med. Mm-hmm. Later on, I really loved chemistry. Uh, in fact, my first I was able to publish two papers as an undergraduate. The first one in science at the uh, on the atmosphere of Mars. Wow! And uh, the second one, use of lasers for space communication. Uh, both of those were physical chemistry. Uh, and in fact, when I went on to either, I was accepted to medical school, uh, but decided to take an extra year uh, doing physics studies at um, at Harvard. And uh, I discovered what I really liked during that period was molecular biology, and that's what I decided mm. to get my PhD. And your PhD was at Harvard, is that right? Yes. And I was really fortunate. Uh, in fact, uh, I've had fabulous mentors uh, along the way, George Pimentel is really the mentor's mentor. He loves students. To give you an idea how much, many years later when I went back to see him with my children, and I thought he'd be very proud I'm now a tenured Harvard professor. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't pay any attention to me. He tried to capture my children's interest in becoming scientists. Uh, I was a little jealous, but I understood what he was doing. Um, But at Harvard, I had the great Good fortune to work with James D. Watson, the discoverer, co-discoverer of uh, DNA. Oh, boy. And, of course, a Nobel Prize winner. And in my view, his scientific contributions are going to be ranked along those with Archimedes, uh, Aristotle. I mean, just mm-hmm. the most fantastic discovery about how we, you know, what inheritance is. Walter Gilbert, the man who learned to uh, sequence DNA, was also my mentor there, more closely than uh, Watson. Um and then for a postdoc, I was fortunate to work with David Baltimore. And while I was in his laboratory, he received the Nobel Prize as well. So I had wonderful mentors. Now, if I may, may I just press you a little bit on that? Because it is one thing to be in the company of truly great minds. 
but it's another to be mentored by them. So can you say a little bit more about what they, you know, any one of them did that really encouraged you and, and you know, just helped set you on the path that you eventually chose? A really good question. I was, George Penn Mentel was a great mentor. Jim Watson, Walter Gilbert, and uh, David Baltimore were great examples. Mm. And I learned from them how to identify a problem and how to solve a problem. But I wouldn't call them mentors. They were not nurturing. My next person I would call a mentor was Baruch Benassarov. He's a Nobel Prize winner in immunology. And he was a mentor mm. in a very different way. But he, he provided a lot of support especially early in my career and then during uh, the uh, tenure process. He was just right there as a mentor, helping me, helping me understand the world. Wonderful man. And then when I f- went into business, I had a fantastic mentor, uh, Walter uh, Steinberg from Healthcare Ventures. Uh, unfortunately, he died early. But to give you an idea of what a mentor he was, the day he died, I kept the 11 faxes he sent in answer to my six faxes. That's before <laughs> Uh, okay, that's a mentor for you. Absolutely. Uh, and so I was really privileged to have really great men as um, as mentors. And as you say, some as great examples, yeah. some as mentors. Yeah, well, I appreciate your fielding that question because on the show Leadership in Action, we often talk about the difference between someone who advises you, someone who coaches you, someone who mentors you, someone who sponsors you. And in your response, I can... Uh, I can hear even the subtle difference between someone who may be sponsored and helped you through the tenure process and others who led by example or gave you very good advice along along the way. Uh, Doctor, you also have uh, credit for having founded, if I have this right, two departments. You know, can yes. is, if I got that right? Uh, again, yes. a little bit of an academic question, but how do you go about founding? Find you know establishing two departments. Well, the in fact they were a data farmer cancer institute, so technically they were divisions. But anybody else would understand them as a department, academic department, because I hired assistant professors and got promoted to full professors, and we mm-hmm. had students and postdocs. Um, basically, you find that if there's an unfilled need, the first department was a department of biochemical pharmacology, and the reason that the unmet need was that there was a need for people to understand what's called cancer pharmacology, how the drugs and radiation that are people who are undergoing cancer therapy really work so that you can make it work better. Mm-hmm. And Dana-Farber had tried to hire a lot of different people. There were only about five in the country. And finally, the head of the hospital said, well, you're really interested in this kind of cancer research. Why don't you create a department? We'll train people. And I have to say, many of the people who went through a five-year training program in the department I created went on to be the leaders of cancer pharmacology today. Mm. Uh, been very gratifying. The second was in response to the HIV epidemic. Uh, I was one of the very first in the world to understand it would be a significant problem, the very first to sequence the virus and understand how its components work, to propose the concept of uh, combination chemotherapy, and then, because there was no organized way to work on it, I created the world's first department of HIV research. Oh, so boy. the short answer to the question is you find an, if there's an unfilled niche and a demand, then you create an academic response to that. And the academic response is to create a department where you can bring a, a group of like-minded professors, mm-hmm. each working in their own individual way, to solve a common type of problem and am or I- to produce a new kind of uh, a specialist. Okay. And am I right in understanding that not only were you the founder, but you also served as chair of both of those departments. Right. Is that right? I did. That's right. Okay. Yes, I was founder and chair. All right. So another leadership in action question for you. Uh, it's, again, one thing to become an expert in your field and highly accomplished. And it's another thing to lead a department. So what, what did you... Uh, did anything surprise you when you found yourself leading one or the other departments? I'll tell you what really did surprise me in leadership uh, as I moved up in my career, and that is it's a feeling of having a voice but no hands. <laughs> a leader <laughs> doesn't do things with their own hands. 
And in, in, when, it, when you're a research person, you're really standing in front of a bench, moving a little liquid from one thing to another or digitally with a piece of equipment. Uh, and when you become a leader, you no longer do that. Other people do that. You encourage them. You motivate them. You offer them opportunities that they take or cannot take, but you don't do it yourself. So I used to say, I have a voice but no hand. That's great. I think that's a common feeling amongst leaders. Well, I again, the I would... Yeah, yeah, Please. Yeah, the other thing I'd say about leaders is a talent to find the right people mm. and to encourage them. And so I've been very fortunate. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I was very interested in HIV about whether the drugs could prevent transmission from a pregnant mother to her unborn child. Nobody would test that in humans. So I searched around and find, found a, a young woman who was interested in doing that kind of research, had the right kind of skills, created a position for her in the department. She was able to show that work that the drugs that were being used to treat AIDS at the time dramatically reduced the incidence of transmission from a mother monkey to a baby monkey. And as a result, people started to use that to prevent maternal transmission. Mm. So that's one example. And her career is going on. She's now a tenured professor. Another time, I was very curious about how the virus got into, into people. I didn't think it was through blood only. And so I went, uh, I, I talked to everybody I could, and I found a kind of cell that goes in and out of your mucous membranes and found a guy at, in one of the few people in the world who could purify those kinds of cells and understood them, brought him in as a young professor, actually a young instructor, then a professor. And we were able to show that that's the kind of cell that carries the virus into the body. He's now the director of a major uh, hospital uh, and mm -hmm. uh, has had a fantastic career. So I think it's important to be able to find the right people. That's great. All right. Let me remind listeners, you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Anne Greenhall, and I have the honor and the pleasure of speaking with Dr. William A. Hazeltine, and he is the author of a new book called World Class, A Story of Adversity, Transformation, and Success at NYU Langone Health. And we will get to the book in a moment. So, Doctor, um, I had the chance to reference one one military reference, Anne Dunwoody in her book, A Higher Standard. I'm going to do another in answer to your great response to my question. We had the chance to talk with uh, retired General Stanley McChrystal twice and once about his book, Team of Teams. And he had a great expression that I know that you'll appreciate. He said that uh, from his experience, uh, leaders were at their best when they led with their eyes on and their hands off. <laughs> so it's a little variation of your comment where you have a voice, but no hands. Right. <laughs> very good. I think that's a great, uh, that's, a, that's a very uh, apt expression. And there's really nobody who studies uh, leadership uh, as much as the military. That is in their DNA. It's yeah. what they do. And I've had... Uh, Wonderful lessons. I, uh, when I lived in Washington and was the CEO of Human Genome Sciences, I had the great pleasure of knowing a lot of senators. One of them was a ch uh, chair of the Armed Services Committee, and through that, a lot of the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff became very good friends with a number of them. And uh, they taught me a lot about leadership. Um, command grip is another great word. Hmm. It's eyes on, but hands on when you need to. Yeah. So... Uh, it's fine to have hands, eyes, hands off. Right. There are some times for what's absolutely mission critical that you need to have what uh, my friend uh, Wes Clark called command grip. Oh, that's great. Very good. Well, I'm going to quote you at a future episode. <laughs> I'm going to put you in the... In... It's Wes Clark. I stole it from him. <laughs> okay, very good. Thank you. Maybe just one finishing note, or if I may, on HIV, because... I, I would just like to hear your thoughts. It seems we've made such progress on HIV AIDS, and yet, you know, have we made as much progress as, as we think we have? Could you just comment on that for us, doctor? Yeah. I've been involved with HIV and observation from the very beginning, 1981 on. And I would say the following. Science has done a spectacular job in understanding what 
the disease was, what to do about it, how to diagnose it, how to treat it, and now even how to stop the infection without a vaccine. It's amazing scientific progress, and it's something I think collectively we should be really proud of. Mm. But countervailing is human, the realities of human behavior. I'll give you a very direct story about human behavior and the intersection with science. Even before we had anti-HIV drugs, we knew that you could prevent transmission almost entirely with condoms. Mm -hmm. And I was an advisor with my friend, who's now the head of the CDC, uh, to the U.S. Army. And a program was created to take men and women where one partner was infected and the other wasn't, and individually counsel them, members of the armed services, and say, if you have intercourse with your partner and you don't use a condom, you're going to be infected with the disease that will kill you. We have no treatment for you. And it's 99% lethal. Please use a condom. And that was done twice. That's about as intense counseling as you can get. The result after observation was only 30% hmm. of people mm-hmm. regularly use condoms. And those that didn't got infected. That shows you how difficult it is when you have a scientific solution as simple as using a condom right. when it comes up against human behavior. And that's been, for the most part, the quandary it's one of the quandaries. I mean, there's a several, several different ones of HIV, AIDS, and science and the epidemic. The other one is people's attitudes towards sexuality. Every time we talked to the military, there was no problem. We understand what this is. Men and women have sex. We know what we have to do to try to educate our people, and we're not going to stigmatize anybody. That is only true of very few countries and very few societies. So it happens to hit that infection at a very sensitive part of human behavior. And we do have solutions. I do believe that uh, over the next 20 or 30 years, we will be able to eradicate or at least use uh, current methods. There's a very nice phrase that's just been created by my good friend, Tony Fauci. You equals you. Hmm. Undetectable virus in your blood means untransmissible. You treat somebody effectively with the current generations of drugs, and you have the first you, and therefore you have the second you. No virus in the blood, no transmission. If everybody's treated, nobody will get infected. Mm. So test and treat is the new mantra. Test everybody and treat everybody. Oh, that's very interesting. And what do you think about the probability of that? You know, given what you've said about human behavior and social mores? Right. That's a good question also. Um, I'll answer it in a maybe um, uh, oblique way. I just came back from Egypt last week, and I was astounded to find a program called 100 Million Healthy Lives. They have initiated last October a program that tests everybody in the whole country, 100 million people, for hepatitis C virus, for diabetes, for hypertension and obesity, and give free treatment for everyone. Free tests, free treatment. Hmm. After four months, they've diagnosed, they've, they've tested 30 million people and have 300,000 people on a curative regime for HCV. If they can do it in Egypt, we should be able to do it here. And many other countries should be able to do the same. Now, HCV is not quite the same as HIV, mm-hmm. because HCV, you give a few months treatment, and you're cured. And if you cure everybody in the country, then nobody else is going to get the virus. But if we identify everybody with HIV and they're on lifelong treatment, the virus won't spread. And it is conceivable, a reachable goal in some, but not all countries, but eventually maybe in all countries. So I think we can see for the first time the end of this epidemic. Hmm. So if I were to uh, step back and ask you a little bit more globally, uh, would you say that in most instances we might find a cure, but we're pushing up against behavior that's a little bit more intractable? Right. In fact, it's a little more complicated than that because it's basically the core of the foundation that I had now. And that is, it's the interaction. It's really the reason I created the foundation. I've been privileged to be part of this enormous 
flowering of biomedical technology and knowledge and really effective means to treat and cure disease. Mm -hmm. Yet not everybody in our, my own country, not to mention many other countries, can fully benefit from that. And there are many reasons for that. Some are very ancient reason, reasons of development that go back many, many years. The countries are poor, badly organized, and badly led. Other reasons, like the United States, is deep philosophies about who has the right to health and should we be giving universal health to everybody? Or do some, or I mean, there's some very peculiar attitudes in this country that prevent everybody from getting high quality, affordable health care. Not that we can't afford it, we just don't do it. And those are not just human behavior, those are deep political philosophies mm -hmm. that are embedded in different cultures. And for example, if you went to Brazil, AIDS was no big deal, just another sexually transmitted disease, Thailand too. But in most other countries, it was stigmatized, denied, hard to get people to focus on it until it was almost too late. In some cases, like for example, around Durban, 70% of young girls between 15 and 25 are infected, mm. 70%. So it took a lot of people getting sick and dying before reality set in. So I think how we use what we do with the knowledge and wonderful tools we have and how those get affected is, I think, the big problem that I'm helping to work on. That's where I've dedicated this part of my life, to try to work on that particular part of the problem. Oh, that's wonderful. We're going to take what they call in the, in the radio business a soft break, but then we will be right back and pick up the conversation. So, listeners, you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall and have the honor and the pleasure of speaking with Dr. William A. Hazeltine, and he is the author of a new book called World Class, A Story of Adversity, Transformation, and Success at NYU Langone Health. We will be right back. Welcome to Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And you are listening to Channel 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I have the honor and the pleasure of speaking tonight with Dr. William A. Hazeltine, and he is the author of a new book, World Class, A Story of Adversity, Transformation, and Success at NYU Langone Health. Doctor, before the break, we were talking about your um, your career, and I do, as I promised, I will get to your book and your current work, but I think our listeners would be very interested to know that you have a career not only as an academic, but as an entrepreneur. <laughs> you founded, you founded, if I have it right, at least a dozen company. And, for example, in 1981, Cambridge Biosciences, and a decade later in 1992, Human Genome Sciences International. Can you just say a little bit about the founding of these companies? Did you leave your academic work to become an entrepreneur? Did you do that simultaneously? Just how did you do that? Well, the, uh, the, the specific answer is the uh, first set of companies I founded while I was a professor, mm -hmm. uh, and the second set of companies I founded afterwards when I left uh, Harvard to create human genome sciences. Um, each of the companies addressed a new human need, a need that was unmet, at least one that I perceived, uh, and matched that need with opportunities that had presented themselves from recently recent, recent discoveries. Mm. Um, let me give you maybe the, the best example is Human Genome Sciences, the uh, company that I left Harvard to uh, found. It had been, been come possible in the late 80s and uh, early 90s to automatically determine the text of DNA. Mm. I had used those technologies, actually the hand technologies, to sequence the virus, the, the AIDS virus. Before we knew much about that virus, we knew its blueprint. And having the blueprint, we knew all its parts. And having all its parts, 
we could immediately begin the process of drug discovery, both in our own laboratory and laboratories around the world. It shortened by about 20 to 30 years the process of going from what the virus was to what a target was for creating a new drug. And once rapid DNA sequencing technology appeared, combined at that time with the use of computers, seems pretty primitive now, but it was really big data back then, mm-hmm. um, and laboratory automation, those three technologies came together, I realized that it would be possible to very quickly sequence those that part of the human genome that I thought would be most interesting, that which makes all of our little working parts our proteins. And um, I knew at that time there was no way I could do that within the confines of the university. You needed a lot of money. You needed it fast. And I thought, this is a great opportunity to open up the possibility of solving many diseases Mm. very quickly, shortening the process of going from disease the organ to tissue to cell to protein to gene that's 30 years 20 to 30 years to gene to disease that can be three months or in one case is we did did it in two weeks in mm. what Bert Vogelstein uh, called clone by phone <laughs> oh, um, great. and so once you have the data and I have to say we had real headwinds because everybody had been going from phenomenon to gene not gene to phenomenon, but I knew it would work because we'd just done it with HIV. And so that's, I think, a good example of how a new company gets started. Three new technologies, brand new, coming together simultaneously, opening up a whole new possibility that has the power to transform the biomedical research enterprise. Oh, very good. The field, which is now known as genomics. And if I may, and so I, it was an opportunity I couldn't resist. Oh well, and I'm and we are glad you did not resist. Uh, if I may, I asked you a question about leadership lessons learned when moving from academic p- position to founder and chair of departments, and you made that wonderful comment about having a voice and no hands and finding the right people. Uh, was there uh, a learning lesson in the move to founder of companies? Yeah, there was a learning lesson, but before I go through what's the difference, let me say what the similarities are. Okay. I think most people don't have a good appreciation of what a professor like me does. If I say I was a professor at Harvard Medical School, everybody will say, well, what did you teach? That's true. I look at them kind of funny (laughs) and I say, well, you know, I really mostly did research. I didn't even have to teach. There were 3,000 professors and 300 students. I taught because I love to teach. They don't like that answer because it, it sort of grates on them. But what, let me tell you what I actually did. I created a research enterprise as an entrepreneur, as a professor. I had to raise all my money, even for my own salary and for all the research. At one point, I had 100 different sources of money coming into my, my department to fund the research. So number one, I had to get the money to do it. Number two, I had to have the ideas. Number three, I had to manage the people. And number four, I had to publicize it so people understood what it was we did so we could get more money to do more work. Does that sound like an entrepreneur? It does. It does. That is an entrepreneur. So at the high end, what a professor that's doing cutting-edge research does is has to be entrepreneurial. I had to manage money. I had to manage people. I had to manage public relations, all those skills. Now, what you don't do, which is different from business, is there's a whole financial aspect to it. You have to begin to manage uh, investment community. Mm. That isn't altogether different from managing a world of scientific peers, but it's a little bit different. Mm. Because there, the value isn't on truth. The value is on money. And anybody who goes into business must understand that ultimately, from the outside world, you may be in it to change the world. Mm-hmm. They're in it to make money. Oh, beautifully said. <laughs> All right, Dr. So Lepp. There's one other thing I Okay, please. In a university, the people that you're working with are working with you because they have dedicated human beings. Same in a hospital. 
They want to hear human beings. They want to solve problems. When you're in a business, you're fortunate to have a handful of people like that. But most people want to feed their family. That's why they're there. And you have to understand that. You have to understand their needs are different from those that are motivated by solving the world's problems mm. in one way or another or curing diseases. They're there, and I have great respect for them, to take care of their families. Oh, very good. And right now you are chairman and president of Access Health International, and we began to touch on that before the break. Can you say more about your organization? Again, it's to meet a need. The need is to match what is possible to cure human beings with what is actually being done. And I learned from my experience on the Alaska Foundation that a small foundation can make a big difference if it changes the course of government policy. Mm. That's what the Alaska Foundation did. So it doesn't do the work. So we don't treat patients in other countries or in this country, but we try to get governments and the private sector to do the right thing. And we don't even try to convince them to do the right thing. We try to find people who are already convinced that they want to make a positive change and put into their hands more effective tools to do what they already want to do. That's what Access Health International is. So we look around the world for the best examples in healthcare services, and we then try to understand them as deeply as we can and package them in a way that those around the world and this country that want to make a difference will have a more effective tool with which to do that. Okay, very good. And so that brings us again to your example, for example, in Egypt, where you talked about testing and treating. Am I, am I following you? Absolutely. And my current enthusiasm is to understand that program, perhaps to write another book about it, and to help other people in other countries do the same thing, because it is probably right now the world's best public health initiative, which will eradicate a disease that's been a plague for millennia, mm. i.e. human uh, hepatitis C virus. It's going to eradicate that disease from the entire country. Wow. And it will treat everybody with one of the big issues we're now realizing is people get older and have various kinds of sedentary habits around the world, non-communicable diseases, hypertension, mm-hmm. diabetes, most importantly, are really serious. We used to think about infectious disease, even in poor countries in poor countries. But now we're thinking mostly about uh, non-communicable diseases. And here you have a country that's got a systematic program to test and treat. That's the kind of thing we love to identify. It's what I identified with NYU Langone, the best in the world, what they do. Mm-hmm. Very good. And it- trying to let people understand it. And right now, your, your foundation operates in the United States, India, Singapore, Bangladesh, the Philippines, and Sweden, and are there more countries? Um, Singapore, uh, let's see. We have a big operation in China. Ah. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, our, our two biggest operations are India and China, followed by Philippines, Singapore, uh, the United States, and uh, we do studies right now in Northern Europe as well. And, and what guides the choice of these particular countries? Um, whether I see either an opportunity to make a change or some efficiencies and great programs that we can learn from and can help others. So that's, and that's matched with people who I can find to work and live there for an extended period of time, because I don't believe you can really understand a country and a problem and a solution unless you stay with it for a number of years. You can't build the trust necessary to get a deep understanding and acceptance for the ideas you've got. So in India, we've been there for over 10 years. I think we're now a trusted partner, and we're crafting what our next 10 years will be there. In in Mm -hmm. China, we've been there for four years. I think in in, uh, Singapore for seven years, uh, Philippines for six years. We put people in the ground for a long period of time, on the ground for a long period of time. Can you speak to what an example of your foundation's efforts in the United States? Well, the, right now what I'm doing is with the book World Class. I was very fortunate 
that what I now have found to be one of the best healthcare systems, academic medical centers in the world, is right here in New York City. <laughs> I came across it by accident. Uh, and uh, once I learned about it, I got very enthusiastic and asked them if they'd let me study it. And so this book, World Class, really is how a healthcare system that was in trouble transformed itself to become excellent at patient care, excellent in research, and excellent teaching by external objective measures from an institution that wasn't doing very well at all. In fact, it was doing so poorly, it was about to bankrupt mm -hmm. the entire university of which it was a part, and they tried to get rid of it by merging it out. And I should add to all those excellent is making a lot of surplus. They don't want me to say profit because it's an offer profit, but they have right. a healthy surplus, which any business would like. Doctor, before we dig into the book, let me just remind our listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I am speaking with Dr. William A. Hazeltine, and he is the author of a book called World Class, A Story of Adversity, Transformation, and Success at NYU Langone Health. So, Dr., uh, Please tell us a little bit about how this organization was able to transform itself. I think the first thing to say is that it was a realization that there was a need, not the need not to go bankrupt. That's a very clear <laughs> danger for anybody, but a need to make sure that the people who came in who were ill got the best of all possible treatments. Uh, and I think the big change was one from an aspirational culture for, to an aspirational culture from one that was complacent. They'd yeah. been a great school. They were complacent. They slid down by every external ranking and were about to go bankrupt. The new leadership came in and put the focus on what we can do as an institution for our patients. And Every aspect of that institution was focused on the benefit of their patients. And all too often, big institutions protect themselves and not their customers. I think that's a fundamental mistake. It's If you're focused on your customer, you are likely to have a very good business behind it. Focus on the human need. In this case, people's need to be well and to feel good about the process. So doing good medicine isn't enough. People have to know they've been treated well, and they have to feel that they've been treated well. So you can have the best doctor in the world in a bad orderly or an mm -hmm. angry nurse, and you're going to not feel good after the process is over. So it's not only good medicine, it's understanding the whole process. But having said that, that's not enough. It's having the vision of how to execute it using the tools that now exist. And... Let's just focus first on leadership. Many books on leadership, which I've read, <laughs> don't talk about the board of directors. Mm. <laughs> the board of directors is critical to success. And I have a whole chapter on the board. And I would say it's a weakness in business schools not to teach people how important the board of directors is. The board of directors set the envelope around which success could occur. They choose the leaders and a good board of directors especially if there's a transformation underway, protects that leader. That's all extremely important. The leader may not even understand how important the board of directors is, may understand that he needs protection, but may not understand how the whole fundamental operation and what can be done and can't be done is the vision of the board of directors. Mm. Within that, then the CEO has tremendous freedom to do many things. A good CEO should have the feeling that he's in charge, but he is in charge in a defined world. And I think that's an important lesson. Second is you have to have a leader who not only has the personal qualities that are often written about, but understands the human need and how that intersects with the tools that are now available. Let me just mention two of those tools that are important for everybody in the United States and elsewhere to understand. From the very outset, Bob Grossman understood that modern medical technology allowed most patients, including brain surgery patients, to be treated outside the hospital in daycare 
in ambulatory care centers. That's a huge advance in technology. So a gallbladder, you don't have to open up the chest. You do laparoscopic surgery in in the morning, out at night. Mm-hmm. They even do total hip replacements by not cutting muscles, just moving in the side, in in the morning, out at night. That's a huge realization. What does that mean for the patient? You can move care to where the patient lives, convenience. It is safer because hospitals are dangerous no matter how clean they are of infection. Sick people are in hospitals. And third, it is a lot less expensive to manage. And what we need in this country is more efficiencies. So it's patient-friendly, safer, and less expensive. Mm. Those are all good things. And so 75% of surgeries are now done on an outpatient basis. And all the hospital rooms are now being converted to single-bedded rooms. That's safer too, because you're not in there with another sick person. So that's a fundamental lesson. Don't build big hospitals. Don't accumulate big hospitals. Focus on outpatient. They went from four to 400 outpatient clinics, Mm. and they are beautiful facilities. What Bob Grossman did 12 years ago, every big medical center in the United States today is scrambling to catch up with. That's a big lesson. It it is. Use modern technology. Let me tell you the second lesson, though. The second thing he realized is that without a nervous system, without a wonderful information system that allowed him to know everything that was happening and allowed everybody within that institution to know what was happening, you could never make that change. Hmm. And you couldn't manage. You couldn't create what's called value-based medicine. Value is quality of care divided by cost. Quality is medical outcome, safety, patient satisfaction, divided by fixed and variable costs, not to mention cost recovery. All of that requires absolute information clarity. And that's another major lesson that he was able to understand from the very beginning and drive that through through uh, amazing execution and support of the board. Mm, Very good. So at the top, you credit Bob Grossman, who was the chair um, of and and the chair who was Ken Langone. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. And the yeah, well, yeah the yeah, importance as you know yes in, in any business is not just one person of course it's the team. So it's Ken Langone leading the board, Bob Grossman, CEO leading the organization, each with very solid team behind them. Right. And I very much appreciate your opening comment about the importance of culture and changing culture. It's often one one thing to say. We talk about that a lot on Leadership in Action. Can you give us a specific example of how Bob Grossman made that happen? Um, I'll start off with an example of what it meant to change culture and then talk about how it happened. When he took over, NYU Langone was 60, rated 60 out of 90 in quality and safety. The woman who was head of that division went to the then CEO. She told me this story because this book is based on uh, more than 50 interviews of mm. people who made these changes. She went to the leader and said, you know, we should do better. And he said, no, we're fine. When Bob Grossman came in, she said, we should do better. He said, what can I do to make your job easier? What resources do you need? How can I help you? Let's become the best. Our aspiration is not just to be good, it's to be the best in the world. We're going to be world-class in quality and safety. The very same people, not many new people at all, with different leadership, different aspirations, (laughs) turned Mm -hmm. that institution from the bottom third to number one in the country in quality and safety in a very short period of time. So how do you get that aspiration? Well, you tell people. And they created a vision. We are going to be world-class in everything we do, patient-centered in everything we do from teaching and research and patient care, and we will be integrated. So all of those activities work together and not across purposes. And we will be integrated with an information system that holds people accountable based on quantitative measure of performance. Mm, wonderful. So that's a change in culture. 
And now, Doctor, we have just about a minute left, but I think it's very important for just for our listeners to know that you speak about this not only from the point of view of a researcher and author and physician, entrepreneur, but also as a patient. That's right. I went through uh, a uh, pretty tough uh, therapy, and I was happy that I knew about NYU Allendone when I uh, was diagnosed, and that's why I chose to be treated there. So I have a firsthand view of what it's like to be a patient there, and I can say, uh, compared to where I've been treated elsewhere, and I have to say I've had a a lot of health issues myself um, through uh, through my life, it's the best I've ever had. Very friendly, wonderful treatment, and I'm happy to say I'm doing very well. <laughs> very good. And now I would just very much like to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can learn more about your foundation and, of course, how they can find out more about your book. Thank you very much, Anne. Uh, the foundation is called Access Health International. The website is accessh.org. The book is available on Amazon and in many bookstores. Um, There is a website that describes uh, a number of my other books. I've written six Mm -hmm. books in the last five years on similar topics. It is www.williamhaseltine, spelled with an S, H-A-S-E-L-T-I-N-E, dot com, williamhaseltine.com. It's a way to find out more about this book and other books. Yes, in fact, let me do... And I want to thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. And let me just put in a plug for some of your other titles, if I may. Aging with Dignity, Aging Well. Uh, Let's see, Focus on Dementia dementia Care. Do I have that right? Uh, Just as a few other titles. Voices in Dementia Care. I'm sorry, Voices Voices in Dementia Care. care. Very good. Well, Dr. Hazeltine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight on Leadership in Action. It was really an honor and a pleasure. And I know that my dear colleague, Mike Useem, and also Jeff Klein, uh, send their regrets. They wish that they could have been here tonight. Well, tell hello to Mike Useem because I know him from my days as a uh, graduate student. I will be, I will be sure to do that. All right. Thank you. Be well and continued success. Uh, Thank you very much. All right, listeners. Well, I hope you enjoyed our show tonight, Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and uh, we will reconvene. As we like to say, the band will be back next week with Jeff Klein and Mike Yusin. I would be remiss if I didn't wish you all a happy Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day, listeners, and come back. Good night. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.